New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Clinical psychologist Dr. Richard Miller has reviewed and conducted interviews with leading scientists in America who are investigating the effects on humans of psychedelic medicines such as LSD, MDMA, also known as ecstasy, psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms, and ayahuasca. His first experience with psychedelics began in 1966 when he was teaching psychology at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. It was then he began to research into what science had to say about these medicines and why the United States government declared them non grata to the extent that profoundly obstructs scientific research into them. However, against all odds, research has persisted, revealing that certain psychedelic medicines administered by proper protocol has shown that altered states of consciousness can facilitate creativity and psychophysical healing. Respected researchers such as Dr. Rick Doblin, the founder of MAPS, which stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, has as his professional goal to develop the legal context for the beneficial uses of psychedelics in marijuana, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people. It's his hope that this will eventually lead psychedelics to become legal for the use by licensed psychedelic therapists. These research studies are suggesting new avenues for treatment for many of our most debilitating illnesses, such as depression, anxiety, addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, OCD, and others. Our guest, Dr. Richard Miller, will talk about the scientific research that has been going on to better understand the emergence of psychedelic psychotherapy. Dr. Richard Miller has been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He hosts the syndicated talk radio show, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. He's the founder of the nationally acclaimed Koki Enders Alcohol and Drug Program and has been a faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University. He's an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health and founding board member of the Gestalt Institute of San Francisco. 
He is also a member of the National Board of Directors for Marijuana Policy Project. Years ago, he bought Wilbur Hot Springs, a Northern California hot springs and spa, and brought it back to life. He's the editor and author of the book, Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of the LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. Join us for the next hour as we explore the healing powers of psychedelic substances with our guest, Dr. Richard Miller. I'm speaking with Dr. Miller by remote connection from his home. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Richard, welcome. Thank you, Justine. That was quite a lovely uh, introduction. Well, you know, you you have a lot of work under your belt, and you've done a lot of research and talked to many, many researchers in in this whole area, and, and we're all very thankful for how you put that all together in this book, Psychedelic Medicine. Um, I'd like to go back to when you had your first experience with psychedelics, when it was illegal at that point. Uh, and that was back in, I believe, 1966. Is that right? Yes. Interesting that you say my first experience with psychedelics, because I've been interviewing uh, people for uh, a book that I just finished this week, actually, called Confessions of the Psychedelic Elders. And in this book, I've interviewed prominent people from around the United States, very prominent people who have been using psychedelic medicines, sub rosa, without anybody knowing for decades. And I'm outing them in the book. And they are revealing transparently how they've been using these substances uh, for decades. And when I asked them about this a question that you just asked me about their first psychedelic experience, it's fascinating how many of them point to an experience that was a psychedelic experience, but not an, a psychedelic experience that was caused by ingesting something. Many of them had a psychedelic experience as children that came to them in a completely different way. And some of them had psychedelic experiences, those who were brought up with religion, they might have had a psychedelic experience in some religious ceremony, which is quite fascinating. And so when I then uh, reviewed my own life in terms of the answer to your question about my first psychedelic experience, I could see that I had psychedelic experiences when I was a child. But of course, they weren't related in any way to ingesting something but they were definitely uh, transforming. They were what you might refer to as cosmic. They were illuminating. Uh, they had many of the qualities that we associate with taking psychedelics. And of course, we know this uh, through the ages. This isn't idiosyncratic to myself or those people have I interviewed, because we know, for example, like the whirling dervishes used to get themselves into a psychedelic state by spinning. You know, there are other ways to do it. But back to your question. Um, I was very uh, fortunate in that uh, while I was teaching in, at, at Michigan and 
and uh, and Leary and Alpert were doing their work at Harvard, I read their book, the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And in the back of the book, they, they say, you know, if you can find heavenly blue or pearly gates, morning glory seeds, and eat about 400 of them, you will have an LSD experience uh, like the ones that we're talking about that the people are having at Harvard and that we're, you know, we're administering to. So quick like a bunny, myself and my closest friend, uh, Alan Pinsense, went out to the local seed stores and we bought up all the, uh, all the heavenly blue and pearly gates, little packages and planned a weekend. And eating 400 morning glory seeds is not an easy task. It's sort of like trying to, uh, for those of you who can relate, uh, it's trying to swallow dry metamucil. It's like eating sand. So, but uh, yeah, so, but we managed to get the 400 seeds down each. Of course, we were good students. We counted them out carefully and, uh, and we took them. And I had um, my, my first uh, psychedelic experience uh, caused by uh, taking something. And it was a huge experience. I saw what appeared to be the pyramids being built. I saw what appeared to be the history of the world in development. I saw people living in caves. I saw them coming out of the caves and assembling. I saw the groups of the cave people getting larger and larger. I saw the groups of these cave people forming villages and then towns and then cities and then geographic areas and then countries, and then continents. Now, there was no such thing as the European Union back then, but in effect, that's what I was seeing in advance, namely, e pluribus unum, 13 original states come together and form a country, and then the country expands to take on the continent. Right now, so many years later, the European Union is coming together as a, as a Europe. And I think what's going to continue to happen, and I got this from my psychedelic experience, that first one, is that Africa will come together as a continent and South America will eventually come together until they will form continents that are under one cloak, and then the continents themselves will come together and we will have a one world order of some kind. I think the nature of that order is what is at stake in the history of the world, namely what kind of government, what kind of procedures and policies will a one world government form? Will it be, on the one hand, a government that's out to do the most good for the most people, which some might call 
socialism, that dirty word that we hear about, and we can talk about that at, at, at length later if you like, or will the world government be some form of strongman ruled by those who believe that certain people are meant to rule and everyone else is meant to follow. That is what we had going back to ancient Egypt when the pharaohs and 1% ruled and 99% were slaves. And that's pretty much what we had on the planet until the American Revolution and this experiment with democracy when we took an entire people and moved them from being subjects of a king who at a whim could do anything he wanted with anybody in the kingdom, including off with their heads. We moved from that to people being citizens of a republic. The republic meaning is a country that's run by the rule of law and each person is equal before the law. Thanks. Uh, I, I just want to comment that your that first experiment, our experience of yours, was the same that my former partner, now deceased, Michael Toms had. It was really in, you know, an overview of the whole history of humanity, uh, which is interesting. And what you're talking about there is systemic change is what you were envisioning. I'm here with Dr. Richard Miller, and he's the author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Dr. Richard Miller. He's a clinical psychotherapist and also the author of Psychedelic Medicine. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, which is mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. And that's also the name of his radio broadcast, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. So you might look that up. All right, so here we are. We're talking about psychedelics. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you know as the physiological effects of psychedelics. What, what do they do? I, I understand that there's 
some sort of default mode network that we work on in with our everyday life. And then when we take psychedelics, that gets disrupted in some way. And do I have that correct? Is that going, is that right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, in broad strokes, Justine, we have chemical messengers. You know, we're a biochemical electrical system, we humans. And, uh, you know, we're just made up of of trillions and trillions of little atoms that get made up into little molecules. And it, we feel as if that we're solid people. We're really not. There's really spaces between our little tiny things that connect, just like the, all the things around you feel solid, but they're really not solid in a certain way. They're little atoms connected. And that's why you can pull them apart. That's why if you hit a table with a hammer, it, it comes apart because it's not a solid thing. It's a thing that's made of atoms that are stuck together and you either hit it with a hammer or if you take something and cut it with a knife, you're cutting the atoms apart. And within the brain of us humans, there are these chemical messengers. And that's basically what they're doing. They're sending messages from one part of our nervous system, one part of our body, one part of our, our brain, of the computer. There are messages being sent all the time. And then as scientists, we give names to these messengers. We try to find out what kind of messenger is there in the brain and, and how many messengers are there in the brain and what are the do, different messages do and what are the receivers like if you throw a ball across a room and you catch it with your hand. In the brain, you throw a messenger called dopamine or serotonin across a room, namely across a pathway. It goes into a little junction box. We give the junction box uh, another name on the wall in your house. It's called a junction box. In your brain, it's called a synapse. And you have these little senders where the axons and the information flows away from these little, little senders. Uh, and then we have, uh, we have receivers, we have little things called dendrites, but basically it's making up a language for the biochemical electrical system that we own. And so we use that to differentiate from other electrical systems, such as the one in our house. And our house also has plumbing. Our house has electricity, just like we have plumbing in our system and we have electricity, and our vehicles have something, you know, called a carburetor. It has a way of cleaning the air. We have something called livers, and uh, that we call them livers, and then we call them kidneys, and they strain out bad stuff. We have a pumping system. We call it a heart. These are, we just give different names uh, when, for the exact same device in different settings, and some of them are more mechanical like our car, and some of them are what we call human or sentient beings, which are us, but the, the systems are very similar. And so the answer to your question is, we take in something, whether it's a medicine like penicillin, or it's a medicine like LSD, and the medicine goes to various areas of our internal system, and it has an effect on the chemistry and on the little messengers who are swimming around sending messages to other places. And so what we have learned over 
thousands of years really, is that some of these things that we take in that come from nature mostly, and nowadays they also come from the laboratory, but many of them come from nature, such as psilocybin, it's a mushroom, uh, ayahuasca, you know, which is a plant, it's a vine, marijuana, which is basically a vegetable or a weed. But we have discovered over time that when you take in some of the, one of these substances, such as marijuana, it goes to the uh, cannabinoid receptors in the brain. And then that information from the marijuana gets decoded by our system and it has an effect. And each of these has a different effect. And they, the fact that they have psychoactive effects is our way of saying they affect our psychology and they affect our emotions, which is very different or quite different than eating a piece of broccoli, which is also a, a vegetable, you know, or, or a regular mushroom that does not have the, the impact on these little messengers in the body. And so that's basically how the system works. And we have discovered a lot through trial and error over hundreds of thousands of years. And we've known about the effects of alcohol on the system for a very long time. There's a, another example. Alcohol has very specific effects and it, it is psychoactive. You drink enough alcohol, you, you will get various kinds of visions. You can get, and part of that is because the alcohol is also described as being toxic, which means in order to get certain visions with alcohol, you have to drink enough of it to basically poison yourself. Whereas that isn't true using another extreme with LSD. Alcohol, you can drink glasses of it and you'll get what we call drunk and you'll be distorted because the alcohol is having an effect on the messengers inside the body and you drink enough and you will have various kinds of visions and hallucinations. You take a microgram, a thousandth of a gram, a little tiny dot of LSD and it affects the messengers in the body hugely. And it's not toxic to the system. We have found that. There is not one recorded death as a result of taking LSD. There is not a recorded death. And that is a direct quote from the foremost scientists on the planet, uh, LSD scientist that is, Dr. Dave Nichols, uh, formerly with the University of Indiana, uh, and now emeritus. And so on the one hand, here's something you take a microgram of, or, or maybe 100 or 200 micrograms, and you have unusual visual and possibly audio uh, changes. You might call them distortions. You might call them visions. Different ways of seeing the world, new paradigms, and it's not toxic. On the other hand, you have alcohol, which also has a big psychological uh, and psychophysical effect. It affects you physically as well. And, um, and it's toxic. It does damage to the system. So we've learned that about these different things. Natives around, indigenous people around the world have been experimenting with various kinds of substances. 
again, for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So we've got a great amount of information. And there are people who are called ethnobotanists who travel around the world interviewing indigenous people and learning about what they have passed down through the ages about various substances. And of course, many of these ethnobotanists are very courageous. And so they take the substance themselves to see what it's like. And then what we have are examples of scientists, many of whom I've interviewed in my book, Psychedelic Medicine, and in the other book I mentioned to you, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders. Many of these scientists have had the course of their lives dramatically shift. And uh, as a result of taking uh, some substance uh, from indigenous people, uh, one of the biggest shifts that I run into on a regular basis that they tell me about is the realization that we and nature are all part of one. It's not us and nature. It's not that we go into nature. It's not that we go into a park. We're part of the park. We're part of nature as much as animals running loose in, in Africa are part of nature and the plants are part of nature. But we have done this thing over the years where people have separated themselves from nature as if there are humans and then there's nature and then you know humans visit nature or humans go to a big park. And what many of us who have taken these psychedelic substances have come to realize is that it, it, we're not separate. It, it's all one big planet and everything on it is part of that one planetary system. And so the humans are just one more part of it, just as the apes are, just as the whales are, just as the ants and the bees are. We're all part of the same system. Richard, that reminds me of something that I read recently. Um, and this was about a, a veteran, uh, a former Navy SEAL, who was kind of after his tours, he, he just sort of was wandering around, not doing much of anything. And then he discovered he had a, a mushroom experience. And that took him into that place that you're talking about. And he remembered in the, as he was under the psych influence of the psychedelic, he recalled his very happy time in his life when he was a kid and he was part of nature. And so that, that set him on his track. It was a very, it, it caused him to have a lot of creativity to start something. I think he called it the Grange Guardian, something like that. And he, it was in Western Marin County in Northern California. And, and that turned out to be beneficial to other veterans to work in the land and then to um, start a butterfly, monarch butterfly uh, sanctuary. So that all came about through his experience with um, mushrooms, with magic mushrooms. So um, yes. it kind of goes along with what you're saying. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with 
Dr. Richard Miller, and he is the author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, and psilocybin, also ayahuasca. And and also, I want to, to remind our listeners that Richard also does a Pro, a radio series called Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Um, so you can look that up on his website, which is mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, O-R-G. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Richard Miller, and he's a clinical psychologist, and he's the author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. And Richard, um, I know that those of you who are very responsible therapists or others, researchers, you all have suggested certain protocols that people should take in order to have a safe and beneficial journey on a psychedelic. Can you relate to us in some way what those protocols might be? Yes, and I think it's a very important question, Justine, because in the area of psychedelics, the very same substance can be a drug or a medicine. And what differentiates whether it's a drug or a medicine is not what's in the substance, because they can be the exact same in both cases. It's how it's administered. A person who gets up in the morning and reaches out for what's laying around from the night before, or just casually goes over to their cabinet and picks out something and takes it, they're, quote, doing drugs. Now, that's their right. I believe that is their right to do that. And a person who decides to uh, take some uh, whatever it is, X, Y, and Z, and go to the park, uh, they're entitled to do that. They are taking, basically taking drugs. The exact same substance is with a, as a medicine is that there are procedures, protocols that are followed. The protocols, the, the main pro a part of the protocols are the three things that are most famous and that everybody has heard about by now, which is set, setting, and guide. Your mental set when going into the experience needs to be carefully evaluated and discussed. The setting where you take the particular material is critical. And then having a guide, a person who is sort of a combination of a babysitter and a coach and a mentor. And the best thing that they can do for the most part is to know how to be silent and just be there as a little bit of a guide, 
you know, should the waters get choppy and, and to work with it. And this is very, very, very important, very important because people all over the world have heard that one of the things that can happen with taking psychedelics is what's referred to as a bad trip, a bummer. But those of us who are practiced with this know that there is no such thing as a bad trip or a bummer because the scarier the material that comes out, the better. Because with the help of a guide, one can examine that scary material, heal from it, conquer it, master it, and come out of the experience no longer having whatever that scary stuff was lurking about in the recesses of the mind, leaving us with, oh my God, if I ever open that door, what's going to happen? That terrible stuff is going to come out, those demons. What psychedelic medicine does is it often allows us to retrieve that dark material and heal it. I want to say something about that because I think it's another important part of that whole healing process, even if it's a very traumatic kind of session, that if you have proper guidance, like even somebody who's trained in some sort of therapy, that they help you when you're coming off the medicine, so to speak, and you're waking up, that number one, they help you to say where you went in that trip. What was the content of that trip? Because right afterwards, if you wait too long, you're going to forget. So they'll help you to articulate there. I know one session I had many, many years ago where my guide said, well, tell us about what you saw. And I said, oh, nothing much. All I saw was my mother's purse. And Everybody in the room just smiled who was who were my sitters because I said, oh, it's nothing. Well, it turned out I worked for the next year on my mother's purse and therapy. So that's where a guide is really helpful. And it's helpful to have that time after you come off the medicine and you're back to your quote unquote normal self that you have time to integrate that and to reflect that with somebody who's with you and who knows how to do that in a way that doesn't interfere but enhances it. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. And we have a special time called the integration time. And it's usually the day after the experience because a psychedelic experience is a three-day experience. It's not a get up in the morning and do it and by night you're over it. It starts with a with preparation. Actually, it starts even before the preparation because candidates are vetted. There are some people who should not be taking these medicines because of their pre-existing conditions. The pre-existing condition could be anything from physical to psychological, and they need to be vetted. Once they're vetted, then they get together with the guide the day before, and there's introduction and discussion of what's going to happen, and there's the there's a, a set a, 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 an intention that is set. What do you hope to get from this? What what is your mental state going into it? What are you looking for? And then there's the experience the next day, and then the following day is the word that you use, integration, and then. 
the integration can continue after that with, with guides at home or your personal therapist so that you can milk that experience as you did for up to a, a, a year or more because you found some gold in that mine and you mined it. And that was, that was outstanding. And that's one of the other qualities of psychedelics, which is they provide healing. They allow material to come out that might not come out under normal therapy, or if it did, it might take so long. Whereas, so for example, with, when the defenses are down, when a person takes MDMA, uh, not to be confused with the street version of MDMA, which is ecstasy, which we can talk about, but MDMA, real MDMA, is an entheogen. It, it lowers defenses. It opens us up to, to, the, to the material inside that we want to take a look at and allows us to non-defensively look at it together. It's outstanding for couples work for that reason, because the couple can talk to one another with their defenses so much lower and their hearts wide open. So in terms of the answer to your question, the protocol, there's a protocol and initially it's vetting, then the introduction, then the next day is the experience. The next day after that is integration. So the experience itself is a three day plus experience. And then to the extent that you're able and want to, you can milk it for a long time in your in your week in and week out work as you did. And, and you know, this is one, I think, of the reasons that it would be beneficial to people to have um have this legalized for uh, therapists, for specialized therapists that specialize in this work so that people can trust to go to to good people to help them out. I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, you mentioned MDMA, um, or the street name is Ecstasy, and the people who, who might take this, number one, if they're getting it off the street, they don't know what they're actually getting, number one. Number two, right. when, they, uh, when they use it, many times people will use it and the, they run into trouble because they're out in public. Let's say they're at a big dance rave or something and they're, they're not taking proper precautions for their body. Their body overheats. They're not drinking enough water, or they're drinking too much water. It's just, uh, it's just not a good situation to be taking these sorts of medicines uh, out in public. Uh, so, it, what what's your comment on that? It's an embarrassment that mm. the United States government's reprehensible policies about research into psychedelics have denied the American public access to medicines that hold out huge potential. The government's reprehensible policies towards these medicines and making them illegal have made honest citizens into criminals because we've got 26 million people in the United States who have done LSD. Every time they did it, they were committing a criminal act. None of us good citizens who are honest citizens want to think of ourselves as doing criminal activity. And yet we are, if we express our constitutional right to ingest 
what we want to ingest in the privacy of our own home when we're not hurting another human being. But it's been declared illegal, and so our jails are full of people who have violated the drug laws. Also, Richard, it's like people then do not have access to the the good quality medicines. And that's another problem because then people aren't sure of their resources and the source of what they're taking. And that's a huge problem, I would think. It's a huge problem because if you take one of these things and you bought it from the street, you don't know what's in it. And suppose you get one of the, you go into an LSD experience where there's ego death. When you experience ego death, it feels like you're actually dying. But if you then have a thought that comes, oh my gosh, maybe the stuff the guy sold me had poison in it and I really am dying. This is an ego death. So then you have to deal with this sort of semi-paranoia that you ate something that's actually dangerous. And that the government did to us. And that is extremely unfortunate. And it's unfortunate that people have to buy any of these materials off the street, as you say. So they can't, don't know that they've got something really clean and pure and safe. Most unfortunate. And, and it's an embarrassment to our country. I'm thinking also of the work of uh, Stanislav Grof, uh, who's a psychiatrist, medical doctor, psychiatrist. And while it was still legal, he did something like 4,000 sessions that he led with different people. And there was, and it was pure, he got the pure LSD for it. And it, it was very, very successful, and his research was great. So I just wanted to remind people that at one time it was legal, and there was a lot of research going on. I'm here with Dr. Richard Miller, and he is a clinical psychologist, and he is the author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, and Psilocybin in Ayahuasca. And he's also the host of the radio series called Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And that's also his website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. with Dr. 
Richard Miller, and he's a clinical psychologist and the author of Psychedelic Medicine. And one of the subjects that you cover is uh, ayahuasca, which is found in South America, and people travel down to South America. I have many friends that go down there and that they do sessions. What do you have to say about knowing before you go the risk of ayahuasca tourism, so to speak. It's becoming a big business these days. The government has created this, just as it, the, the government put a prohibition on alcohol and created the mafia. The government put a prohibition on marijuana and psychedelics and created the narco-traficantes. And now the government has created these uh, eco-Amazonian ayahuasca tours. And uh, of course, there's danger involved because there's plenty of fruits and vegetables that are grown in South America, but we don't fly down there to eat them. We have them shipped up here. And the only reason we're not having more of the ayahuasca shipped up here so that our experts can administer them is because it's illegal. And so the government has created another monster. And so we have people going down there as tourists to take ayahuasca. Is there a risk? Of course there's a risk. You have no way of knowing whether the shaman that you uh, go to down there is a genuine shaman and would know what to do if things got rough and would give you a great trip, or whether the person's out to make some quick money, or whether they're sexual predators who are doing it as a way to get American girls down there and have sex with them. And, and it's all of the above. So, of course, it's caveat emptor, and I would never recommend uh, that someone go down there unless they knew from close friends and associates, a particular a seminar or guide that had a great reputation. There are those, uh, but you, you, you've got to do deep research and you got to watch out for the advertising because the advertising that they're doing and the retreat centers they're using are pretty beautiful and phenomenal, but that doesn't mean the work is good. Exactly. So um, I'd like to also have you talk in these last minutes about the um, SSRIs or antipsychotic drugs. Some, some people call them lobotomy in a pill. Uh, so what are they? And, and uh, you see them advertised all over TV. Uh, so let's talk okay. about those. Okay. Some of the psychiatrists uh, theorize that the people who have various kinds of emotional difficulties, particularly uh, powerful ones like what's called schizophrenia or what's called uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, that their brain chemistry is out of balance. And so what you need to do is give them medicines that will balance their brain chemistry. But then there are others, such as Robert Whitaker, who wrote the book Anatomy of an Epidemic, which is a must-read book, who point out that there is no real evidence for the uh, imbalance of the brain chemistry of these people. On the contrary, there's evidence that their brain chemistry is just the same as the rest of ours. So then what happens? If in fact their brain chemistry is the same as yours and mine, and you put in some chemical in there that's gonna take that little messenger and get it out of balance, they are then out of balance from the medicine. So then they're walking around in a different kind of balance than they ordinarily are. They already have their own problems. Now they've got the problems of the medicine on top of it. Then when they get sick of the medicine or, they, or it's not, they're not getting the results that they want, they try to quit the, these medicines. 
And what happens is they go through terrible withdrawals because now the body is trying to get back to its regular state after having dealt with these messengers that they ingested that are messing up their neurotransmitters. So they go through withdrawal. When they go through the withdrawal, like you described that you went through, what happens is they think that their symptoms are coming, that these are more of the symptoms of their underlying illness. They don't realize it's they're coming off the medicine that's causing the symptoms. They think it's themselves causing these, these symptoms. So then they think, oh, I, maybe I better get back on. And they get right. into a cycle of getting on and getting off right. and getting on and getting off. You know, one uh, some years ago, my mother was a binge alcoholic, and myself and my siblings uh, had her, convinced her to go to an alcoholic retreat center. And so she went there, and we were very happy about it. But what was shocking to us was the center sent her home with the most a huge bottle of Librium at that time. That's what was prescribed. And, and so she was taking, instead of alcohol, she was taking Librium. And we couldn't predict her actions after that. We were very afraid for her because it was such a different realm of psychosis, let's say. And we were actually happy when she got off a of Librium and went back to alcohol because we knew how she would react on that. So this is just an example of what you're talking about, I think. It's an excellent story. That's a real teaching story, Justine, where a family is happy that the patient gets back on the drug that they try to get rid of, namely alcohol, because the medicine that was given to them made them even worse. And that is an important story for your listeners to hear. There's something that's going on. I think uh, last year in November, the idea that where it stands legally, and in uh, Oregon, there was a citizen's initiative called um, the Bill 109, Oregon Psilocybin Services Act, and it got passed. And here's something that's kind of churning up, at least in Oregon. Where does the legality of all of this stand these days? The foot in the door was medical marijuana because it was the least scary and the most people used it. And also the fact that the anti-marijuana laws were basically anti-people of color laws. So when Caucasian people started using it around the country, things loosened up. So now more than half the states in the union have some kind of a marijuana law allowing its use for either medicine or recreational purposes. That's the foot in the door. The next one coming down the pike due to the work of Rick Doblin and MAPS is going to be MDMA. Rick expects it'll be a legal medicine by 2022 or 2023. And this march is going to go on. All of these medicines need to be legalized, and there are people who will continue to fight the good fight, such as the Drug Policy Alliance, the Marijuana Policy Project, Normal, the National Organization to, re to Reform Marijuana Laws. These people have been fighting this fight for decades and will continue because it's really at a very basic level unconstitutional to make it illegal to take something into your mouth and swallow it in the privacy of your own home. That's really the bottom line of this whole story. 
I would imagine, though, that there there will be and there is a backlash from big pharma companies that that actually have a kind of annuity set up because when they prescribe a drug of some sort, and you mentioned my time with it was uh, with clozapine um, that when I came off of it, I thought I was just terrible because I did it cold turkey. But but these these annuity models, so to speak, that you take a pill for the rest of your life, 365 days of the year, whereas with uh, a psychedelic session, maybe one or two a year, might just really provide the kind of healing that we're looking for if it's done properly. Any comment on that? There's no question they're threatened, and they're going to try to figure out a way to get market share. I'm not sure yet how they're going to do it, but they're going to have to deal with a whole new environment because psilocybin is a mushroom, and people can grow it in their kitchen. It's not a very complicated thing to grow, and so they can produce their own. And marijuana is the same. You can grow it in your backyard. So... It's not something you really have to go out and pay for. Uh, but the more important than, than how you get it and, and how inexpensive it'll be if you, when you make your own, Roland Griffiths at John Hopkins has already demonstrated to the world that one session with psilocybin is, is effective a year later for depression. And, and you compare it to taking the medicine, as you pointed out, 365 days a year, you're absolutely right, and I love the word you used. The pharmacies are getting an annuity from the pharmaceutical companies. They're getting an annuity from, from million, tens of millions of Americans. And what makes it even, even more troublesome, Justine, is that the pharmaceutical companies have gotten into bed with leaders in the field of psychiatry, and they have literally gotten them to increase diagnoses, in other words, make more behavior pathological so that the pharmaceutical companies can sell new medicines to people for these, quote, new disorders. I just want to mention one thing before we go off the air, and that's that that uh, they're allowing GPs, that's general practitioner doctors, to distribute these pills. Now, you, you spend an average as a client, as a patient, maybe 10 minutes or less with your GP. Whereas with a psychiatrist, you're spending at least an hour, an hour and a half, and you do many sessions. So to allow GPs to prescribe these medicines, uh, you bring up this up in the book. So I just want to encourage people to pick up the book and read all the research and all this data that's available. I've been speaking, thank you, Richard. I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Miller. He's a clinical psychologist and the author of Psychedelic Medicine, The Healing Powers of LSD, MDMA, Psilocybin, and Ayahuasca. And if you want to know more about his work, go to his website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3742.
This is program number 3,742. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.